Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another installment. Please follow us at danproftshow.com, where you can find us podcasts of the program as well as on spotify and itunes you can also follow us on social media at dan prof show on facebook and twitter at prof dan on instagram and uh boy what a weekend of uh coronavirus task force briefings huh the press really uh has uh, found a new low as they're wont to do uh, one by asking questions like whether or not president trump wants to sign 175 million checks that will be mailed out to the american people as part of the disaster relief legislation to not asking about one of the topics that dominated the conversation over the weekend into Sunday evening, which is the use of hydroxychloroquine as an antiviral therapy. Uh, it was a topic on Saturday where FDA director, Dr. Stephen Hahn addressed the matter. Uh, we are prioritizing this drug to come in for clinical trials also into general use for physicians because, as you know, physicians, based upon their interaction with the patients, their assessment of the risks and benefits, can write a prescription for hydroxychloroquine if they think it's appropriate for the patient. Being a physician, we do this all the time, and that assessment needs to be done between a patient and a doctor. And then the third portion is we wanted to make sure that these drugs were in the circulation, in the, in the supply chain, so that people who have them or need them for the other indications, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, had them available. So that was the purpose of the emergency use authorization. All right. And so tens of millions of doses of uh, HCQ have been distributed to hospitals around the country, as was reported for use based on a doctor's decision with respect to a particular profile of a particular patient in a particular condition. Uh, now, Trump, as the uh, who's quickly becoming the national pitch man for HCQ, uh, went full Jackie Mason at the uh, Sunday briefing. I want people to live, and I'm seeing people dying. And I've seen people that are going to die without it. And you know the expression, when that's happening... They should do it. What really do we have to lose? We also have this medicine's been tested for many years for malaria and for lupus. So it's been out there. So it's a very strong, powerful medicine, but it doesn't kill people. We have some very good results and some very good tests. You've seen the same test that I have. Uh, In France, they had a very good test. They're continuing. But we don't have time to go and say, gee, let's take a couple of years and test it out. And let's go and test with the test tubes and the laboratories. We don't have time. I'd with love the to test do that. tubes and the laboratories and whatnot. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined 
Again, by Michael Goodwin. He is New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. You know what's frustrating? There are so many things frustrating, but one of the things is even something where this should not be in controversy in terms of the importance of uh, antiviral treatments to this. You're having a very difficult time getting straight answers out of the uh, task force, and you're having a very difficult time getting the right questions asked by the press corps. Yeah, unfortunately, everything comes down to sort of pro-Trump, anti-Trump, and that's the lens through which the media is trying to force the country to see things. And uh, as I said, it's it's really unfortunate. And and I think that there is a fair amount of misunderstanding, some of it intentional. But don't forget, the president uh, from his very first day in office was talking about the right to try. And that is for patients reaching the end of life. If there was a drug that was not yet uh, in full circulation, there were some concerns, it's not clear what the results would be. But, that, I mean, don't forget, you know, you had a lot of patients of means going to Mexico to try different cancer drugs. Some of it was quackery, but sometimes people found relief and even something of a cure. And so I think the president has brought that same, what do you have to lose if it's at the end of your life and there's a possibility, why not try it? He's brought that same approach to HCQ, and I'm glad you came up with those uh, initials. I think you did. I mean, that's, that's excellent. We don't all have to try to pronounce that long word. Uh, <laughs> well, and, but, and, uh, and I, I think the other reason it's important, too, and this is uh, sort of uh, argued by Scott Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, in the journal uh, talking to a former Federal Reserve governor, is that until there's a medical breakthrough that gives people confidence that there's a treatment for this so that it's not lethal in most cases, you're going to have a difficult time getting people over their fear factor to return to normalcy. And so, you know, there's that that economic impetus to find something that is viable as well. And and this is why I don't understand. Okay, um, it's going to be on a case by case basis. Doctors discretion. Understand that when there are clinical trials going on that they keep referencing. Why can't we get the answer as to what is the time horizon by which we're going to get answers about whether or not this is a viable treatment according to statistically significant scientific data uh, and both the HCQ as well as remdesivir. You know, we, we want the data so we can make a, a unequivocal pronouncement that we have antiviral therapies that work. Um, th- that's true, but I think that's also somewhat ideal. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think if you follow the, the analogy that, that this is a war, we're in a war, um, a lot of things you get breakthroughs, you experiment because you must. And I think that, again, is the president's approach, that we don't have time to do this in the perfect way. Uh, I think he's also correct in arguing that the medical establishment and the federal bureaucracy throw up a lot of hurdles to things that we don't have time for now. Uh, I mean, the testing is a good example of that. The, if, you, if you read, I mean, the New York Times actually had a pretty good story on the testing debacle within the uh, FDA and CDC. And you look at it, I mean, they kept saying next week we'll have it. And then next week they would say next week we'll have it. I mean, that's classic bureaucratic behavior. And I, I think that, you know, the president clearly uh, was, not, was not in front of that issue. He was, the, the government was behind on that issue. And so I, 
I believe that, uh, you know, part of what the president is doing now is trying to say we're not going to play by that rule anymore. And there was an interesting article, and in, I believe it's uh, Axios, about uh, Saturday, a meeting on HCQ that involves some shouting yeah, because Navarro uh, and Peter Fauci. Navarro right. saying, look at all these tests that have been run. None of them are definitive. Many of them are foreign. But there are examples where it saves people. Why don't we make it more broader? Well, and, and Fauci and some of the doctors saying, and scientists, well, these are not definitive. They're anecdotal. Okay, fair point. But as far as I can hear from all of this argument, there's no anecdotal evidence that says it will kill you. Uh, it's going to kill large numbers of people. It may not help, but it seems not to hurt. And it, it, as, as we say, it has been used on other, on other diseases such as lupus and malaria for a long, long time. So I, I'm with the president on this. Not, I, I agree with you. He's become something of a pitchman. But I think what he's trying to do is prod the bureaucracy and bring this to public attention. And maybe there's some hope in it. And, you know, God knows this country needs more hope right now. Well, and the whole uh, mantra of we need to open up the country back, this country wasn't meant to be shut down, that's, you know, starting to try to control expectations, flatten the curve of fear, if you will, and uh, get people thinking about reopening. And that's only going to be uh, fueled by the news out of Germany today that they're looking at uh, uh, ending their lockdown on April 19th and beginning a phased return to, to something approximating normal life with certain limitations still in place like mask wearing and limits on gatherings and such. So that's only going to, you know, the dominoes fell in one direction in terms of lockdowns. Maybe Germany is the beginning of the dominoes falling in the other direction. Yeah, that, that is interesting news. I agree. And uh, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday, about how, how do you have a phased-in unlocking? Uh, I mean, one of the things that I think is very hard to discuss in this context, but that this disease is not uniformly uh, fatal or even destructive. I mean, there's very much an age issue for, for many of the victims. And so in, in, in opening back up, do you, do you look at this through the prism of age for, for some things? Right. I mean, that's a hard thing to do, but maybe, maybe we begin to focus on who are the most likely victims and find extra ways of protecting them while as not shutting down the society for a disease that by the numbers is not, it's not infecting even 1% of the country but it is killing a large number of those who are infected and then primarily within that subset it's people either with who are older much older or who have these underlying immune system issues so i i do think we're going to have to think this thing through in in new ways and hard ways because it's hard to imagine you can just drop a switch and everything get reverts back to normal in a single day that can't happen Speaking of age, uh, Joe Biden's pronouncement on what Trump is and is not doing correctly. We'll have that uh, and get Michael Goodwin's reaction to it. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. We'll be right back with more. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. 
And uh, this is what constitutes uh, press coverage of coronavirus. Those uh, in the White House uh, briefing room reading tweets from Joe Biden and asking the president to respond as happened on Saturday. Um, Joe Biden actually just attacked you in a tweet. I don't know if you have seen it. He just what? Attacked you. He just said. Well, he that- didn't write anything. Look, he has people, he has professionals from the Democrats. Mr. President, writing. let me just read what he said. He said Donald Trump is not responsible for the coronavirus, but he is responsible for failing to prepare our nation to respond to it. How do you respond okay. to that, sir? Uh, he didn't write that. That was done by a Democrat operative. He doesn't write. He doesn't. He's probably not even watching right now. Uh, and if he is, he doesn't understand what he's watching. That was one of the more interesting lines of the weekend. Uh, 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 but but I mean, this, you know, I mean, what, what uh, Biden's campaign tweeted is the anodyne leftist talking point. Trump, the virus isn't his fault, but his underreaction is his fault. And it's uh, engendered the apocalypse. That's basically the media's narrative. Yeah, and and that's the narrative narrative that the New York Times helped to create for the for the uh, Democrats with its article on testing. And yes, the testing was a debacle. But as I write in my Sunday column, which I think is now on FoxNews.com, if you look at everything everybody has said and done, all the major players, including. Uh, Nancy Pelosi with impeachment, how they wanted to keep it running all the way through February. Chuck Schumer, who has done absolutely nothing about anything. Uh, You you look at uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York, who's getting lots of accolades about the way he's handled the situation here. But the fact that New York State is short of ventilators, Andrew Cuomo's in his 10th year of governor. Uh, certainly there were many warnings about ventilators, about ICU beds, that New York was unprepared. So Mayor de Blasio in New York, uh, New York City Health Commissioner, you go up and down the line, Dan, and you can find something somewhere where every major player made a mistake or said something ridiculous, something that now looks absolutely stupid. I mean, the New York Times, for example, Sneered when the president made those first restrictions on travelers from China. Sneered that this is right-wing xenophobia. Uh, it saved lives. But it, and everybody is doing that now. And the New York Times later called for a national shutdown. Right. So they were wrong. Everybody's been wrong about something. Well, and again, I liken it to war. You know, you don't stop the war to find blame. You don't stop the war to... F- point fingers and say, aha, it's your fault the attack failed. No, you keep fighting the war. And then when the war is over, when you have won, then you have the luxury of going back and reviewing what everybody did and said. And if we're fortunate, there will be lots of time for that before the election. But for now, we are in a life and death struggle for millions of Americans and we have to, I think, put all of our energy on that. All the blame will not save a life. It will not create a job. It will not bring any relief to anyone. So why don't we all just start looking in the same direction and all of us work together, achieve this victory, and then we can start having a shootout in a lifeboat if we want to. Well, that, yeah, that would be ideal, but I, unfortunately there's, there are some key players that aren't uh playing along, as you say, as you suggest, that, you know, just off and on with Andrew Cuomo. 
but you know, also my home state governor, J.B. Pritzker, who was called out by President sure. Trump on Sunday night. You know, there's a there's a page on the CDC website, state and local government planning, preparing for a pandemic influenza, a primer for governors and, and senior state officials. You know, you put this uh, CDC report up against the uh, actions that have been taken by incumbent governors around the country. It'd be interesting to see how many have uh, implemented you know, what percentage of the rec- CDC recommendations. I'm sure very few have read it and very few have done anything in furtherance of it, to your point. And, and the other thing, and this is on Trump a little bit, too, I wish he'd provide a little bit more institutional knowledge and a little bit more humility to say exactly what you're saying. There's plenty of blame to go around. We've had reports from uh, the intelligence community, from the public health community going back to the 1990s. Uh, this ABC News story over the weekend, George W. Bush's speech at the National Institutes of Health in 2005, where he was granular, to borrow from Dr. Burks granular in his detail about what needs to be done to prepare for a pandemic. But the politicians, the public health experts, including the ones we have front and center right now, including Tony Fauci, they didn't have the foresight or they didn't press the foresight they had to the extent that we were prepared for something that was unforeseen, which is sort of an oxymoron to be prepared for something unforeseen. And, and, and just, just, you know, wrap your hands around the whole thing and say, you can pillory me all you want, but this is the reality. So here's some institutional knowledge for you to have about the 30 years leading up to this. Now can we just, you know, shut out the naysayers and focus uh, on what's before us, like you say? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not naive in, in urging this because in, in light of the political polarization that we have and the tendency of everything in the United States today is that it's either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Right. So that's the dividing. I mean, before Trump, there were other dividing lines, but now they've all crystallized into this one litmus test. And it's unprofitable for the country. There's no winning that war right now. You have to, uh, the federal government can't do everything. There is a role for the states. And if, if we all just want to try to uh, reconfirm our, our pre-existing political ideas, then go right ahead. But again, what will that help? Uh, you know, I get, these, I get these incredibly hateful emails from people saying, you know, it's Trump, it's Trump. You just, you know, your, your head is up his butt. I mean, they say the most right. vile right. things right. because they hate Donald Trump. They don't care. I mean, it's, it's, you, you can read through this and say the more people who die, the better for their argument, because their argument is only that Trump must be removed. And they don't care how it happens. They just want it today. And so I just, I just find that so odious and so destructive. I mean, we've all had people who are affected by this, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our country. This is a horrible event in American history. Let's not make it worse. He is Michael Goodwin. He is New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Well, in furtherance of feeding your mind rather than feeding your fear, as we were talking with Michael Goodwin from the New York Post, no safe spaces. One of the things you should watch during the shutdown, during your downtime, no safe spaces, the number one political documentary of 2019. This is the film put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla. 
that focuses on how America has become a dangerous place in certain venues to speak your mind and share ideas. Venues like college campuses, on social media platforms, and uh, of course in Hollywood. It's uh, now available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. It's uh, a film that illustrates how America is exceptional, and it also shows how our foundational values are under attack and how you can fight back as so many others are. Check it out. Limited time availability. No safe spaces. Nosafespaces.com. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, last week, uh, you you heard it here, but you'll hear it again. Uh, Joe Biden had this to say about uh, elections. Uh, queried about whether or not Wisconsin should move forward with its primary election tomorrow, which, of course, it is because of Governor Evers's bungling of the process of trying to postpone the election and trying to do it too late. Uh, so that that combination of that, whether or not he thinks Wisconsin should move forward with their election, which is happening. And also a look ahead towards the November election where Joe Biden wants states to start preparing for a election that's done by mail and ballot only. You know, the House talked about some of this and the president said, well, if we did what the House wanted, we'd ensure no Republican ever get elected. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, And so this is about making sure that we're able to conduct our democracy while we're dealing with a pandemic. We can do both. It may mean a difference in the way we do it. It may mean that social distancing doesn't get it done. It may mean that you have a circumstance where you have drive-in voting, literally, you pull up and you have vote. There's a lot of ways to do it, but we should be talking about it now. And President Trump responded on both topics on Friday at his task force briefing. Why did he do this two weeks ago? All of a sudden, excuse me, all of a sudden an election which is taking place very soon gets delayed. Now, I just endorsed him today and it was a very strong endorsement. His polls, he's gone very high up. And all of a sudden the governor comes out, the Democrat governor, by the way, comes out and says, oh, we're going to move this election. So I don't know. I'm sh- I hope you're right. But, I hope but, you're but do right. you think every state in this country should be prepared for mail-in voting? No, in case because we're in a I think a lot of people cheat with mail-in bo- voting. I think people should vote with ID, voter ID. I think voter ID is very important. And the reason they don't want voter ID is because they intend to cheat. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Hans von Spakowski. He's senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation, former Federal Election Commission commissioner, and former lawyer for the Department of Justice. Hans, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. So who's right, uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Uh, well, Joe Biden is mostly wrong, and the president is is mostly right. And and let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. Um, you know, B- Biden said, oh, any criticism of the House, and he meant the coronavirus package that Pelosi tried to put forward, which had a bunch of election provisions in it, but any criticism of that was misplaced. But that's entirely wrong. Uh, and here's why. Look, in every, every state already has provisions that allow you to vote by absentee ballot. Um, 
and uh, the states don't need a federal mandate on top of that. But in fact, what the what the Pelosi bill did was it got rid of all of these safeguards that many states have put in place. It said, for example, that uh, no state could apply an ID requirement to absentee ballots. They couldn't require require witness signatures. They had to allow online voter registration. Um, they had to automatically mail an absentee ballot to every voter rather than having the voter request one. It was all kinds of things that would make it easier to cheat. And unfortunately, absentee ballots are the easiest way uh, to steal an election. Well, and didn't we see some of what Trump is referencing generically uh, in the last election, it not necessarily uh, dis- uh, uh, concluding that it was fraud, but you had robust ballot harvesting programs going on in places like Orange County, where a bunch of Republican seats right. were flipped to Democrats. And it does raise questions and questions that, you know, local authorities that are allied with the uh, candidates doing the ballot harvesting programs may be uh, disinclined to look into. Well, yeah. And in fact, the, the Pelosi bill said that any state that banned vote harvesting, it tossed that out. And people need to understand what vote harvesting uh, is. Um, it, look, in many states like North Carolina, you can mail in your absentee ballot or you or a member of your family can deliver it. Uh, but nobody else can do that. In states like California now, where vote harvesting is legal, anybody can pick up your ballot. That means candidates, party activists, political consultants, uh, political guns for hire, people who have a stake in the outcome of the election, they can pick up your ballot. And re- remember, it was just the 2018 election where we had a congressional election in North Carolina overturned because a political consultant working for one of the candidates was going in to people's homes, collecting their absentee ballots, changing them, forging signatures, and making sure that the votes, when delivered, were for his candidate. And the, the fraud was so, so bad that they overturned the election. That's what happens when you allow vote harvesting. When we come back with Hans von Spakowski, former FEC commissioner, I want to get into just the larger play here, which is to federalize elections. More with Hans right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Back with Hans von Spakowski. He's senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation, former Federal Election Commission commissioner, and former lawyer for the Department of Justice. And we were talking about the left's gambit to federalize elections, which is essentially what's afoot here, right, uh, Hans, with respect to what uh, Joe Biden is uh, advocating, what Nancy Pelosi previously introduced in legislative form. Yes, that they're they're basically pushing for the feds to take over the election process. And that is not the way we run elections in this country. They're run at the state level, in fact, down at the county level. And that's a good thing, because that means that the, the party in power in Washington doesn't have the ability to change and manipulate election rules to ensure that they win elections. That's, that's what the founders intended when they designed the Constitution, and that's the way we should keep it. 
But uh, what I'm hearing from uh, uh, people who support the uh, no excuse absentee voting and uh, want uh, the California voting regime to be the regime uh, across the nation is, oh, these uh, assertions of fraud, the president's assertion of people cheating. There's no evidence that any of that occurs. There's no basis for it. Well, I suggest those people go to the Heritage Foundation uh, election fraud database. We have almost 1,300 proven cases of fraud from across the country. Uh, many of those involve absentee uh, ballots uh, and uh, anyone who thinks that doesn't happen or that people won't try to take advantage of it the way uh, it occurred in the 2018 election in North Carolina. They're, they're just being unrealistic. And we do have states that uh, that allow for this uh, in toto, right? Like Oregon, the mail-in voting. I'm t- I'm speaking of. Yes, I mean Oregon has all mail ballots. They they just think they're great, um, but uh, there are problems with it. The only check they have um, to make sure it's an authentic vote is they compare the signature. Uh, of the voter from uh, the person who registered and the, the mail that comes in. Uh, but that's not a sure way of, 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 of ensuring that uh, fraud is not occurring, particularly if you have a bo- bad voter registration list that has people on it who have moved or, or deceased or otherwise shouldn't be on the list anymore. And what about uh, those who argue, and I believe Pelosi has been one of them previously, for online voting? Every major group that has looked at online voting, including the National Science Foundation, has recommended against it because the security problems inherent in the way the Internet is organized and, frankly, the software and hardware uh, used uh, by everyone, it's just too dangerous. You can't guarantee a secure election. You can't guarantee it won't be hacked or uh, viruses will affect people's computers that will change their votes. Yeah, I, I mean, look what's happened to Zoom the last week as that uh, site yeah. has been used by so many uh, educational establishments and teachers and how many people are hacking into different people's classes and stuff like that. And now I'm not saying you couldn't design a system, and I'm sure Zoom will, that has the appropriate firewalls to prevent that level of hacking. But as uh, the hacking community will tell you, right, virtually nothing is hack proof. No, that's right. And an election would be a huge target right. of people trying to uh, get into the system to change election results. Um, get, get, talk a little bit about disenfranchisement, because somebody might hear you say, oh, 1,300 cases of election fraud over over several elections, over many elections. Well, I mean, that's a very small percentage of, obviously, the number of people who vote. So it's, you know, nothing is perfect. And so... You know, aren't you making more of a big deal about it than it really is with a a relatively limited incidence of such fraud? Well, our our database only goes back about 20 years. It doesn't reflect the unfortunately long history of voter fraud in the United States. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, You know, a lot of fraud goes undetected. Uh, I, I can tell you of many cases where I know fraud occurred, but prosecutors didn't do anything about it, election officials refused to do anything about it. Uh, And the point is that, um, look, elections in this country are decided all the time by a very small number of votes, particularly local elections, state elections, city and town council elections. 
And it doesn't take a lot of fraud to uh, basically steal people's votes and, st- and, and make the election outcomes uh, unfair. And we should be guarding against that. Uh, what that means is that, yeah, we want to be sure everybody who's eligible um, is able to vote. But we've got to take steps to maintain the security election to ensure that their vote isn't actually stolen or diluted by fraud or, frankly, administrative errors. And with respect to the fraudsters, uh, you had a good piece where you give an example of this to make it concrete. Uh, to tell us about you know who the fraudsters normally prey on. And, and one example you gave was the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Yeah, yeah. North Carolina is a good example. Or, look, we, we recently added a case to uh, our database of a mayor in a small town in uh, Alabama who last year was removed from office for committing voter fraud in his election, a voter fraud that got him elected. And what was the margin of victory? A little over a dozen votes. And the, and and who these fraudsters normally prey on? Who they're targeting when they are going no, to, to they, vote to vote somebody they, else's interest? The, the, the people who are often the victims, frankly, are um, folks who are poor, particularly in minority neighborhoods. Um, a great example of this, a case in Troy, New York. A couple of years ago, a local political consultant was um, convicted of absentee ballot fraud, stealing the votes of real registered voters. And who did they target? A low-income housing neighborhood. And when asked why he targeted them, he said, well, those are the folks who are least likely to complain Mm. about it. That's why they targeted them. He is Hans von Spakowski, Senior Legal Fellow for the Heritage Foundation, former FEC Commissioner and uh, former DOJ lawyer as well. Hans, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Picking up on our conversation with New York Post Michael Goodwin from earlier in the hour, President Trump had a message for the hysteria-fomenting D.C. press corps and their histrionics, both during his task force briefings and during their normal course of business. Uh, this at Saturday's task force briefing. Every decision that we're ma- that we're making is made to save lives. It's really our sole consideration. We want to save lives. We want as few lives lost as possible. It's therefore critical that certain media outlets stop spreading false rumors and creating fear and even panic with the public. It's just incredible. I could name them, but it's the same ones, always the same ones. I guess they're looking for ratings. I don't know what they're looking for. So bad for our country. 
And so bad, the people understand it. You look at the levels and approval ratings, and they're the lowest they've ever been for media. It's so bad for for our country, so bad for the world. You got to put it together for a little while, get this over with, and then go back to your fake news. <laughs> Just it's very much like uh, Houston and Baltimore mayors to the criminals. Hey, hey, knock off the crime for a couple of weeks. We got to focus our resources. Then after this subsides, you can get back to your crime. Sort of the same thing, uh, Trump with the press corps. Knock off the fake news. And then you can get back to your fake news and and uh, focus your attention on uh, trying to defeat me in November full time after we're on the other side of this. Uh, the president is not uh, wrong when he comes comes to his assessment of the impact of the press coverage. This Huffington Post YouGov survey out of the weekend, even if restrictions were eased by mid-April, 61 percent of Americans would still stay at home when possible. Only 19 percent say that they go back to their regular life. That's how uh, much fear the D.C. press corps has engendered, even when the modeling they uh, repeat and amplify breathlessly turns out to be false or not false, inaccurate overestimations like on the number the the uh, number of hospitalizations. The University of Washington study wildly off happy that it's off, but it's off nonetheless. The revisions down in anticipated death toll. You know, I, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, Bill Buckley, the great William F. Buckley, founder of National Review, and uh, his uh, famous postulate on who he'd uh, prefer to be governed by. Uh, and under the circumstances, uh, I rejoice over the influence of the people uh, over their elected leaders, since by and large, I think that they show more wisdom than their leaders or than their intellectuals. I've often been quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. Indeed, and I've got a corollary to that. I won't do it in the Boston Brahmin accent, but I've got a corollary. I would rather have D.C. happenings reported to me by the first 500 shoppers at a randomly selected Costco on a randomly selected date than the gang of 500 political press corps who drives that coverage. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. So there were some tangents taken during the press briefings over the weekend, the task force press briefings about President Trump relieving two individuals of their duties, the inspector general for the intelligence community, Michael Atkinson, as well as the um, commander in charge of the uh, USS Roosevelt. We'll get to each in turn. Uh, First, uh, Atkinson, Trump was asked about firing Atkinson on Saturday, and here's what he had to say about Mr. Atkinson and the decision he made. I thought he did a terrible job, absolutely terrible. He took a whistleblower report, which turned out to be a fake report. It was fake. It was totally wrong. It was about my conversation with the president of Ukraine. He took a fake report 
and he brought it to Congress with an emergency, okay? Not a big Trump fan, that I can tell you. Instead of saying, and we offered this to him, no, no, we will take the conversation where fortunately we had a transcript. If we didn't have a transcript with the kind of uh, deception and dishonesty that were practiced by the Democrats, I might not be standing here right now, okay? Fortunately, we had a transcript, and it was a perfect transcript because even the lieutenant colonel admitted it was correct. By the way, President of Ukraine, foreign minister said he did nothing wrong. And over that, with 196 to nothing vote by the Republicans, not one dissenting Republican vote, dishonest Democrats impeached a president of the United States. That man is a disgrace to IGs. You know who the whistleblower is, and so do you, and so does everybody in this room, and so do I. Everybody knows, but they give this whistleblower a status that he doesn't deserve. He's a fake whistleblower. And frankly, somebody ought to sue his ass off. All right, it's enough of the whistleblower. Go ahead, please. Uh, so uh, not backing down on that decision, as you heard, in no uncertain terms. Uh, let's start there on uh, I.G. Atkinson and Captain Crozier with our friend Lieutenant Colonel James Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War, Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. I think Harry Truman just lost his status as the most plain-spoken president of all times. Yeah. Um, well, let's start with Atkinson. Was it uh, a fair, I mean, obviously it was within his power to do so. Was it the right decision? Well, I, I, I think the president made the case that the, a very senior inspector general in a very, very important decision exercised very, very poor judgment that caused an enormous amount of disruption. If you're not a competent public servant, you shouldn't keep your job. I mean, I think that's fundamentally the president's argument. What about Captain Crozier of the uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt, who was relieved of his duty for sending out a letter about um, coronavirus infection on his ship? That was uh, distributed to through unclassified channels through that was distributed to a couple of dozen people and ultimately leaked to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm usually very reticent or, or reluctant to comment on cases like this because I'm not presented with all the facts in front of me. You know, I was in, in the military for 25 years and I, I was never in combat, but I was in some pretty tough situations, in, including a, a situation where. Uh, we were out in the, in the middle of winter training, and we just had an enormous outbreak of trench foot and cold injuries and, you know, dealing with that and talking to the chain of command. So I've been in situations that remind me of that. I have to say, and the facts as presented by the president in the, in the outbreak and as presented by the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of Navy, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the captain. There is a chain of command. I didn't see the emergency that the chain of command needed to be circumvented. And essentially, if this is true, you release his claims to the public out of the chain of command when none of the crew were critically ill, when he still had plenty of crew to operate the ship. I actually, I'm not sympathetic for the captain. Uh, New York Times reported over the weekend that uh, 430,000 people arrived in the United States on direct flights from China, including nearly 40,000 in the two months after Trump imposed travel restrictions. The bulk of the passengers arrived in January, L.A., San Fran, New York, Chicago, Seattle, Newark, Detroit. Thousands of them flew directly from Wuhan. This continues to fuel what you're hearing from politicians, particularly on in, uh, Republicans in the Senate, about the need for a China investigation, investigation in China about the need for reconsideration of our funding of the World Health Organization, 
of a need for reconsideration of our of, of private uh, enterprises supply chains in China, of a reconsideration of everything America and China related. That's a lot of ground to cover. Let me offer two comments. First of all, on what how the Chinese actually behave, we have a report out today by one of our analysts, Olivia Enos, it's on our website, heritage.org, where she went through and documented all the publicly available information where the Chinese were not just bad with the rest of the world, but documenting how they restrained and complicated and limited the response in their own country to keep their citizens, uh, take care of their citizens. So the Chinese have a, have, do have an awful lot to be responsible for. On, on the World Health Organization, I think that, that takes, let's just pause a minute on that one. Last year, we gave $400 million to the World Health Organization. That was twice as much as the next largest competitor. China gave $40 million. So take a zero off of there. They're actually a very mediocre contributor to international organizations. On the other hand, the Chinese have over a thousand employees in the UN and international organizations. Every single one of them is responsible to the Chinese Communist Party. So from a monetary standpoint and a support standpoint, the U.S. remains by far the global leader of, a, of supporting international organizations, which are supposed to be doing useful things like the World Health Organization, the National Civil Aviation, the National Maritime Organization. But we have, for a decade, really been kind of asleep at the switch, where the Chinese have essentially infiltrated these organizations and have shifted the purpose of the organizations to support it, China's interests and China's claims, as opposed to actually being organizations to coordinate organizations between states. I think that's bad on us. If you actually look at this administration in the last, I would say, two years, they've actually been starting to turn a corner on that. There was a very important election not long ago for WIPO, which is the World International Property Organization. Essentially, they coordinate patents worldwide. And the U.S. woke up one day and said the Chinese had a candidate, the world's leading international property thief had a candidate to head the world intellectual property organization. It's like, sure. it's like James Dillinger, a bank robber wanted to put somebody on the, on the bank board. And, uh, you know, so there's, a, so the United States needs to up its game in this area in particular. What about uh, triangulating uh, some of the countries that had relationships with uh, China to uh, reestablish stronger bonds? For example, Italy and their uh, alliance with China to bring over so many Chinese migrant workers. Well, the Italian uh, PM uh, Giuseppe Conte was on Meet the Press over the weekend, uh, restating his thanks and appreciation for both President Trump and America in terms of helping them with responding to the outbreak in Italy and northern Italy in particular. It, it seems to me uh, you you have obviously the UK is apoplectic about uh, right. uh, China. So it seems like there's opportunities here with respect to even our erstwhile allies to, to forge stronger bonds. I, I think that's absolutely correct. China's brand has been sullied largely uh, because of things China has done. The U.S. has a, a tremendous opportunity to re-engage with um, not just traditional allies, but with countries that are on the fence and say, look, we need to be realistic and pragmatic about how we deal with China and just quit wishing you know, we had the nice panda bear we'd all want, as opposed to having a very aggressive very untrustworthy, very mendacious international partner. And, and and does that mean also, if not governmental action, public pressure on private actors, whether it's big pharma companies or it's the NBA or Hollywood as it pertains to the Chinese market? First of all, I think transparency is the number one tool. If people see what the Chinese are doing, people will make better decisions. And I do think that the marketplace, when they look at, at China now, they recognize 
we have to do business differently, that we have to look at risk in dealing with China very differently than the past. It's not just dollars and cents. It's property theft. It's their behavior. It's their lack of respect for the rule of law. It's their tremendous abuse of human rights or use of slave labor. So I do think companies will look at China differently. But we're not going to – I think being realistic, we're not going to completely disengage with China. But I think it is really advantage U.S. Um, China needs to export. Uh, China needs to grow. Um, China needs to sell people stuff. So they're in, a, they're in a tough spot here. And I think, I think the president has a lot of leverage in future dealing with China to really, really bend them on, on, on what their behavior is. I, so, you know, we say we got to bend the curve and we got to get Americans back to work. As soon as we do that, we've got to go out in the world and start really pressing the advantage in foreign policy that we have because everybody has been hit by this thing. Um, and and we have to reset the table. He is Lieutenant Colonel. We will I'm be one sorry. of the stronger players. We need, you know, the president's always said we need to, you know, protect our interests. Well, the, the time is going to be the day after. That's going to be the best time to do that. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for your insights. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Another one bites the dust. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is becoming a recurring segment, Lies, Damn Lies, and COVID-19 Statistics. Uh, So many categories over the weekend. Projected hospitalizations, according to the IHME model. This is the University of Washington slash Bill Gates funded model. The uh, death counts, COVID-19 per CDC guideline. And then modeling in general, and a particularly egregious model from a week ago in the New York Times that was deconstructed by a Carnegie Mellon mathematician and his wife, who's a microbiologist. Let's start with uh, Sean Davis over at The Federalist, looking at the IHME model that has been given such profile by the Trump task force, doctors Burks and Fauci. The model projected that uh, end of last week, 121,000 people would be hospitalized in the country. The actual number, 31,000, quarter of the prediction. And uh, looking in, uh, even in states like New York, where you have obviously a real outbreak. The projection was 50, round numbers, 51,000 hospitalized. The actual number is uh, 18,000. The model projected, the the range uh, of the model projected from a low of 9% in, in, uh, of the projection in Tennessee to a high of 50% in Virginia. But that is a significant margin of error, I'd say. And again, those models on certain assumptions make projections And then human beings take actions which have a mitigating impact and can alter the models. So you have to feed the real world data into the models, change the assumptions to get a better reflection of what's actually happening on the ground and so forth. Junk in, junk out. That's the problem with models. And it's the problem with making massive decisions that have such impact on people's lives with incomplete data, woefully incomplete data, because you're making decisions on things like the scarce resources we have for with the Army Corps of Engineers to build field hospitals or stand up field hospitals with uh, resource allocation of hospital beds and medical professionals and medical ships, a la the 
ship that was scrambled to and some of the ventilators that were sent to Washington State being repurposed as they've been able to maintain uh, some stability with respect to their caseload in Washington State. And the concern about people cooking the numbers, you know, if somebody has to cook the numbers, then they're obviously not being straight with you about the scale of the problem there. It's more about their particular ideology or what they want to be true than what actually is true. We've seen this, of course, with models on climate change. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, friend of the show, posted uh, this over the weekend. As you sit watching COVID death counts, please know the official CDC guidance for coding COVID-related deaths is as follows. Any death where the disease caused or is assumed to have caused or contributed to death, confirmed lab tests are not required. He adds uh, other possibly relevant factors like um, the, the uh, like underlying conditions are considered secondary. The rules are expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not. And interestingly, you see deaths that are being reported that are influenza uh, pneumonia related declining as they're being clearly categorized as COVID-19 deaths. And some of it is just plain silly. It's anecdotal, but it speaks to this, you know, if you believe or suspect no lab tests required, so, for example, um, just heard from a friend in law enforcement whose aunt and cousin passed away last week. Both were on hospice for unrelated issues, one for cancer, another for organ failure. They tested positive but were asymptomatic, yet the cause of both deaths was listed as COVID-19. There was another case where a guy falls off the lad- a ladder to his death, test positive for COVID-19 posthumously, COVID-19 death. So we have a denominator problem in terms of the number of infected. We've talked about that a lot on this show because of not having a handle on the asymptomatic people, not doing testing of representative samples in the body politic that you can create uh, statistically. uh, You can create models for that are within the 95 percent confidence interval. But this, this, you know, effort for ease of purpose that leads to the inflation of COVID-19 related deaths is problematic as well. Now you've got questions about a numerator in addition to a denominator. And, you know, just as a, a quick aside, um, thinking about this balance that we have to strike, this assessment that we have to make. You know, I was looking at it this weekend, and I'm looking at uh, CNN's data, okay? Uh, as of Monday, 36 states have death rates of one or less than one per hundred thousand COVID death rates of one or less than one per hundred thousand 36 states, three states are in double figures, Louisiana, New Jersey, and New York. What's the context for that? This, the, uh, per the CDC, the death rate in America in 2018 was 724 per hundred thousand. So this is why I'm using hundred thousand. So you could do some apples to apples here. 724 per hundred thousand. That's uh 7,000 people a day, a little bit more. It's round numbers. 3 million people per year die in America. In 2018, again, CDC numbers, death by suicide was 14 per 100,000. For influenza and pneumonia, it was 15 per 100,000. And right now, uh, only New York has a higher death count per 100,000 than 15 in the entire country. Now, again, I stipulate no denominator. So projecting the lethality rate is still tricky 
However, again, you heard from Tony Fauci, you will again. Uh, CDC estimates 25 to 50 percent of infected are asymptomatic. That that's a huge number. They're not showing up in case numbers at present so that because of the lack of testing. So there's a good chance lethality rates could be significantly lower. Now, there's other things that could suggest they would be higher. And death, but but I mean, 25 to 50 percent. Uh, you heard on this show, Philippe Lemoine on Friday, Cornell University, say uh, that we should support a shutdown. He supports a shutdown because of what we don't know, not because of what we know. That's at least honest. But despite our incomplete knowledge about the impact of the virus, the mitigation efforts and the shutdown, real world decisions continue to be made. And we also know from previous studies. For every one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate during recession, that's one per hundred thousand increase in the suicide rate. One per hundred thousand, which is where 36 states are right now with respect to COVID-19. I mentioned and I'll mention again, this Bristol University risk management professor, Philip Thomas, who who modeled that after mitigation efforts result in a GDP contraction of more than six point eight, four percent, you're costing more lives than you're saving. Of course, the projections of GDP contraction in Q2 are 15 to 25 percent by some of the big banks. So, again, is a prolonged shutdown the right call? Given what we know and directionally what we suspect based on what we don't know and hopefully we'll know by the month's end i'll go wherever the data leads and modeling that is based on complete or certainly more complete data that has more reliability so you're not off by factors of uh you know four five ten twenty five as was the case with the Imperial College London model initially versus the revision last week. You need to be thoughtful about this, not ideological. But the the quality and accuracy of the information matters because the quality of the accuracy and the modeling matters because it informs the quality and the accuracy of the decisions that policymakers are making. This is Dan Prof. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Theodore Dell Ripple, Dr. Theodore Dell Ripple, writing uh, in The Spectator about uh, fear, guilt, and COVID 19. This is an intriguing, intriguing passage. The installation of genuine fear, whether justified or not, is always a good way to discipline a population. It's done, of course, for the population's own good to make it behave better or more responsibly. A mixture of of definite statistics, the absolute or cumulative number of deaths day by day, for example, and projections of present trends indefinitely into the future, together with unknown quantities such as the true rate of mortality and an absence of any sense of proportion, promotes obedience and trust in authority as the only shield we have. Levity is replaced by panic. Um, is that a happy circumstance? Is that an appropriate way to deal with a pandemic? Is that an appropriate way to consider the uh, collective mental health of the population, though, perhaps are some questions that should be explored. So let's do that. We're pleased to be joined by Theodore Dale Ripple, retired psychiatrist, contributing editor of City Journal, 
the Dietrich Weissman Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of In Praise of Folly. Theodore Dalrymple, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Uh, so um, the uh, installation of genuine fear, whether justified or not, is a good way to discipline a population. Um, that, that may be so, but is that value neutral? Is that a good way to govern? The first thing to, uh, to assess is whether the fear is actually justified or not. And this is much harder than at first sight appears. There was a, um, a very interesting, I don't know whether I mentioned it in the article, but in, in about 1940, just at the beginning of 1940, a well-known surgeon called Trotter pointed out that the blackout regulations in Britain, before a single bomb had fallen, before a single German bomb had fallen, uh, was responsible for 600 fatal accidents. So 600 people had died of the fear of bombing before a single bomb had been dropped. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't to say that at no point was fear of bombing uh, justified, because clearly it was. Uh, so it's all a question of timing and, and, and perspective and so on. Well, it also, yeah. it seems to me, a question of honesty uh, in terms of reporting the nature of the fear uh, our understanding, our nature of the threat, I should say, and our understanding of the threat, what we do and what we don't understand, the rationale for the measures that we're taking, rather than just sort of whipping people into a pandemonium uh, without particular direction or cogent basis, right? Yes. Well, I mean, we still don't really know whether the measures taken in many countries uh, are any good or not. Mm. If we look uh, compare uh, some European countries with Sweden, which has been much less uh, drastic than other countries, the results so far in Sweden don't seem to be worse than in many other European countries. But of course, one can always argue that they're about to get worse. And maybe they will get worse. I, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert. And in fact, no one's an expert in the on the future. So um, uh, it's true that we that most people are, for example, have no idea how many people die in the United States a day. Right. I mean, if you went out into the street and asked how many people a day die in the United States, do you think many people would have even an approximate idea? No, and and it's and sort of that speaks to I think my point, which is to say that uh, you know right now the the death rates, just for example, and and again, no denominator. So I uh, I wave the caveat flag about uh, these numbers, but yes. uh, one in a hundred thousand or less in thirty six of the fifty states is the death rate. The death rate in America generally uh, in 2018 was 724 per 100,000, 15 per 100,000 flu uh, pneumonia and influenza. So it's it's not yeah. to say that those are, are immutable, that the, the COVID number is immutable, of course, but it provides that context because it seems to me that if you make projections like that Imperial College London study made and it's re reported without context, without any consideration of the assumptions of the model that were going to be adjusted based on real world data, then you end up delegitimizing yourself when your models come in. Uh, in real time, you know, 2,500% off the mark. I uh, wrote a, uh, something about models saying that, of course, the models depend on your assumptions. Right. And then I made a model which suggested that 3 million people were going to die in Britain of this disease. And then I made a model in which I suggested that a further 95 
people are going uh, to uh, to die. And actually, my assumptions in both cases were not completely unreasonable. They were not assumptions that no one had made. So, uh, yes, I, the, the tendency, there is an inherent tendency in the human mind, I think, uh, to, to, uh, to regard uh, catastrophes as, as being uh, likely to happen. Uh, when we come back with Theodore Delrypple, I want to get into this dichotomy he presents in his piece at the Spectator, Fear, Guilt, and the Virus. Fear versus the thrill of fear. Two very different emotions. We'll start there with Theodore Delrypple right after this. I'm a cowboy on a horse This is the Dan Proft Show. <laughs> Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking with Theodore Dalrymple, retired psychiatrist, contributing editor of City Journal, the Dietrich Weissman felt the Manhattan Institute, and author of In Praise of Folly. Theodore, the fear and frisson of fear, or thrill of fear, are two very different emotions. Distinguish those for us and why the difference between those two is important in this context of the pandemic. Well, I, I gave the example of arriving in two cities which were more or less shut down. Lima, uh, at the time of Sendero Luminoso, when they were about to take over, or it looked as if they were about to take over and they could have taken over, when the real fear was absolutely palpable. I mean, people thought that they might have their throats cut tomorrow. Sendero Luminoso was a, a movement of the Pol Pot uh, school, really. And it looked as if it might take over. And so the fear was absolutely obvious. It was genuine and inescapable. Now, I arrived in Paris just as it was uh, shutting down. Most of the people we met were making jokes about it. So they didn't really fear the virus, even though they'd been told it might be dangerous. They didn't really believe it. And in fact, they were quite enjoying their fear, their so-called fear. It wasn't really fear, because if you really think you're uh, going to have your throat cut or you're really going to suffocate to death, you can't enjoy it. But when I arrived, at any rate, in Paris, it's the atmosphere has changed. People were rather enjoying it as a kind of sensation. Uh, this was a new situation it wasn't boring yet. It was quite exciting in a way. You point out, I mean, uh, there's a certain psychology of like living through something like this uh, or, or experiencing danger like this that you don't really believe is danger that sort of becomes a rite of passage. I live through COVID-19. Especially when actually underneath it all, we are the safest uh, group of people who've ever lived in the whole of human history. Never has life been safer for the vast majority of people. And so, and so it's... And therefore, you and seek therefore it out. We, we like actually to feel that we've lived through something. I mean, I feel... I've lived in a very fortunate era in which uh, I haven't actually um, suffered anything terrible. I haven't, uh, I haven't been oppressed, uh, and so on and so forth. And in a way, it makes me feel slightly guilty by comparison with what my parents went through, for example. And therefore, I quite like the idea uh, that I'm actually living through something that is truly terrible. Um, well, now, the flip side of that, uh, or, or I'm going to argue it's the flip side of that, are people who are uh, fearful of or actually experience economic ruin. And the studies that suggest, uh, for example, during a recession with every uh, one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate, you increase the suicide rate by 
approximately one per hundred thousand. Um, yeah. So yeah. so the, the mental health uh, cost of the economic ruination, if that comes to pass. Oh, yes. I, I, well, I mean, I don't think anybody now could possibly not fear uh, the economic ruination which yeah. is facing us. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of small businesses. I mean, I can walk in to the extent that I'm allowed to walk at all in Paris. I can see all these shops uh, and businesses shut down. Most of them can't have that much working capital. And maybe many of them will not be able to reopen unless the government extends them credit, which itself has uh, economic uh, consequences of a severe nature. So I'm not uh, <laughs> that uh, what has now happened uh, causes fear and in my view, is entirely justified fear. Well, right, um, and and so, and but but it seems to me one of the problems we have in making and in, in policymakers making decisions, in, in in addition to incomplete data that could be uh, wildly, wildly inaccurate, is um, the seen versus the unseen. We see and we see tick, yeah. tickers of of people who are dying because of coronavirus. We're not seeing what's happening to people. Uh, under stress or worse because of uh, economic harm done? Well, I- interestingly, of course, it's a French economist, uh, Bastia, who who brought to, uh, in the 1840s, who brought uh, to our attention the fact that any policy has both an obvious and seen consequence and an unseen consequence. Right. Um, uh, and the problem at the present moment is we don't even know what the seen consequences are, let alone the unseen consequences. Uh, we don't even know whether our policy, uh, say the French policy, has worked. And we won't know, and we won't know for a long time, actually. Um, we can't know. I, I feel, uh, for once, I do feel uh, some sympathy for our rulers who are going to be damned if they do and damned if they don't. Yeah, you know, you uh, you raise in your piece uh, an observation by Bertrand Russell about uh, the rational man uh, being the man whose beliefs are in proportion to uh, what evidence there is to support those beliefs. And it seems to me it, it's difficult to define what the rational man is in these times because of the uh, the dearth of reliable evidence. Yes, I mean, we still we don't know what the mortality rate of this disease is. We don't know how many people have been affected by it, but who have not um, suffered anything from it or who have suffered minor. As you say, we can't say what the, uh, what the mortality rate from this disease is. And so, um, so as we can only say, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, no. Well, we can only say what the, what the mortality rate of of uh, of uh, cases is that have been discovered, and the number of cases that are discovered is actually a function not of the number of cases there are, but of the means by which we try to discover them. He is Theodore Delrip, a retired psychiatrist, contributing editor to City Journal, the Dietrich Weissman Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and author of In Praise of Folly. Theodore Dalrymple, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, per Theodore Dalrymple, and in the interest of good mental health, so you don't uh, turn into Jack Torrance's out there, here's something you can check out during your downtime that will be edifying. No Safe Spaces, that's the number one political documentary of last year that was produced by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, focusing on how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas on college campuses, on social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood. 
It's now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Hollywood has tried to keep this from you by preventing it from posting on the streaming services. So check out nosafespaces.com to watch No Safe Spaces and learn how you can join Dennis and Adam and uh, a cast of others across the ideological spectrum in making sure America continues to be uh, a free society where free minds reign and uh, idea exchange is reality. No Safe Spaces is the documentary. NoSafeSpaces.com is where you find it. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, look, the cheap shotting cannot go unresponded to. You can't just let uh, the super PACs and the uh, D.C. press corps, which is effectively a de facto Biden super PAC, play this uh, blame game over the coronavirus without any historical context, without any institutional knowledge, without any honesty about the progression of this over the last uh, 90 days and who was doing what. And as we talked with Michael Goodwin earlier in the show from The Post, and who was wrong about what? Though de Blasio has piped down from early on in this process, knowing that he's living in a glass house with pronouncements he made as recently as a couple of weeks ago about uh, the spread of the virus that don't comport with the reality on the ground in New York City, as we all know, that uh, he best just focus on the job at hand to be working with the White House and working with uh, Governor Cuomo to get the resources he needs to help those in need in New York City. But just a reminder, okay, this is not cheap shotting anybody. I'm not holding them responsible for what happened in New York because you're mostly going to hear from de Blasio, his public health commissioner, Osiris Barbeau. But with a little Nancy Pelosi sprinkled in, with a little bit of Ron Klain, former chief of staff to Al Gore, sprinkled in, all saying more or less the same things over the course of the last uh, four weeks into mid-March. Mid-March. The risk to New Yorkers for coronavirus is low. This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. I'm going to do that today myself. Come to Chinatown. There's Pelosi. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. There is no concern at this time for coronavirus in our region. The Department of Sanitation is ready for Mardi Gras 2020. The facts are reassuring. Mardi Gras. We want New Yorkers to go about their daily lives. You know, and it goes on from there. Mardi Gras, which, of course, is uh, what it is described as the uh, point of the outbreak in Louisiana. They're Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street, of course. Well, uh, Center for American Progress, which uh, used to be run by Hillary Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, is now run by Hillary Flack, Hillary Obama Flack. They're out blaming Trump for the deaths. 6,200 plus deaths, 244,000 plus confirmed cases, 10.4 million unemployed claims in March. This is the tragic cost of Trump's chaotic, incompetent coronavirus response. It's all on him. Sean Caston who is an honorary member of the squad or the Socialist Spice Girls, as I call them. Incredible. Actually, a member of Congress tweeting this out over the weekend. To bet on Trump is to bet against the American people. So you you don't want a federal response. You think you're going to work around the president of the United States, are you? The response in Illinois, I can tell you, as an Illinoisan, leaves a lot to be desired. A group that's associated with Sean Caston in the Chicago suburbs put this post out 
on Facebook. Remember, while Trump was eliminating the pandemic response team, Republicans led him. While Trump was lying about the risks of COVID-19, Republicans supported him. While Trump continued to target Obamacare during the pandemic, Republicans helped him. Trump didn't kill Americans by himself. Republicans killed Americans, too. All you Republicans, you have blood on your hands. You can't let that go unresponded to. You can't allow them to make such outlandish statements without pushback. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump uh, over the weekend asked uh, at one of the task force briefings about uh, mail-in voting, something Joe Biden has suggested we need to consider. States should start to be making preparations for mail-in voting, having an all-mail-in election in November. Uh, President Trump was asked about that and also sort of in the context of the Wisconsin primary election, which was uh, in doubt over the last 72 hours, no longer in doubt. It's going to happen tomorrow. And, um, boy, Democrats are none too happy with Governor Evers about that. The uh, mayor of Racine, Corey Mason, there's this enormous conflict between what we need to do in a democracy in the midst of a pandemic. You can't have a stay-at-home order, but then tell millions of people go to go stand in line and congregate near one another across the state. Having an election in the middle of the stay-at-home order makes no sense. It did not have to be this way. Well, I know, but that was Evers's choice. President Trump on uh, Wisconsin and the larger concept of mail-in balloting only for elections. Why did he do this two weeks ago? All of a sudden, a, a, excuse me, all of a sudden an election which is taking place very soon gets delayed. Now, I just endorsed him today, and it was a very strong endorsement. His polls, he's gone very high up, and all of a sudden the governor comes out, the Democrat governor, by the way, comes out and says, oh, we're going to move this election. So I don't know. I'm sh- I hope you're right. But, but, I hope but, you're but right. do you think every state in this country should be prepared for mail-in voting? In no, case because we're in a I think a lot of people cheat with mail-in voting. I think people should vote with ID, voter ID. I think voter ID is very important. And the reason they don't want voter ID is because they intend to cheat. When you get something, when you buy something, you look at your cards and credit cards and different cards. You have your picture on many of them. Not all of them, but on many of them. You should have a picture on your on your, for voting, it should be called voter ID. They should have that. And it shouldn't be mail-in, excuse me, it shouldn't be mail-in voting. It should be you go to a booth and you proudly display yourself. You don't send it in the mail where people pick up all sorts of bad things can happen by the time they sign that, if they sign that, if they sign that, by the time it gets in and is tabulated. No, it shouldn't be mailed in. You should vote at the booth and you should have voter ID. Federal judge uh, again extended the deadline by one day to request an absentee ballot this last week and is allowing six additional days after tomorrow to return them. But uh, 
did not uh, acquiesce to the request for postponement. Well, this Gouda got a lot better for Wisconsin. Just see, see what I did there. Scott Walker, he is the former governor of Wisconsin. We know him well. He's also now the president-elect of Young America's Foundation. Governor Walker, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, Trump has a point with respect to Governor Evers, doesn't he? I mean, uh, DeWine uh, postponed his election. Other states postponed their election weeks ago. He could have postponed this election much earlier rather than creating this chaos in the last uh, few days if he had uh, had more foresight. Well, unfortunately, this is a pattern here. You know, it's a lack of leadership. Uh, when you kind of originally, uh, Governor Evers said, let's go ahead, just keep there no need to change it. Then uh, he got a little bit of pressure and he, and he said, well, we should mail out ballots to everybody. And, and then in the last couple of days, he said, oh, no, I'm going to call a special session to move it. The problem isn't just the politics of this, which uh, should be uh, apparent, but but on top of that, You've got not only a statewide uh, election for the president, meaning a primary for both Republican and Democrats, a statewide election for the state Supreme Court, but you've also got all these local officials, all these mayors and city councils and county boards and others. And in Wisconsin, many of these uh, local elected officials take office within weeks of the election. And so you'd have a problem. You say you delayed it by a month unless you change the law. Suddenly now for a month or a little bit less than a month, you might have an elected official who legally isn't in office anymore because their term's up. They should have handled this literally weeks ago. They could have done that in a way that said that everything got delayed, plus the term got delayed for a few months or a few weeks. Somebody obviously would have tried to challenge that, but I don't think any court would have said that was unreasonable. But there was no leadership. The politics of this, you can't escape that. Uh, the the effort, the the calling of a special session, this was a way for him to try to blame shift. Uh, I'm talking about Governor Evers, right? Blame shift and say, oh, no, it's Republicans who won't go along with postponing it. It's their fault. Yeah, there are even many in the Capitol complaining that they thought that uh, this was even worse politics that originally when they thought it was going to affect uh, more rural areas and when they thought there was a likelihood that most Republicans are, are typically uh, want to vote in person uh, and aren't real keen on absentee ballots. Remember, weeks ago, the Republican-leaning counties, the suburbs of Milwaukee, maybe a third uh, of the people were voting absentee as compared to last year's uh, 2019 spring election. Big counties like Dane County, where the state capital is at, Madison, Milwaukee County, Kenosha County had over 50%. So if you're cynical and you look at it and you say, oh, okay, well, let's just keep the election like it is. Now, suddenly, City of Milwaukee, which normally has about 130 polling places, I think is consolidated down to just five. And as I mentioned, they were already doing the drive-through yesterday. Suddenly, I think the governor got pressure saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't a good idea. Bottom line is they should have worked this out weeks ago. They could have done it in a reasonable way that extended these local government terms and still had a safe election process. And and we heard some suggestion that uh, some of the uh, early returns from Milwaukee County and the Madison area, which is sort of base camp for the Democrats, weren't what they wanted them to be, particularly as it relates to the Supreme Court race that President Trump mentioned. And uh, that was also influencing uh, Evers's oscillation on whether or not to hold the election tomorrow. Well, yeah, and this has just been a total mess. You, you add into the fact that long before coronavirus, there was an opening, uh, a vacancy created by former Congressman Sean Duffy announcing his departure uh, from, from Congress in northern Wisconsin, where the president does well. Same thing, the, 
the, the current governor could have put that ballot on the same time as this spring election, but because that is a not only increasing the Republican area, because it's an area that does exceptionally well for the president of late. Uh, again, a lot of people in, in the state capitol thought the governor just pushed that back uh, to a different date so it wouldn't gen up turnout uh, for uh, uh, for a conservative like uh, Justice Kelly. It, it's just it's just a mess, and it's what happens when there's a failure to communicate and a failure of leadership. Um, and unfortunately, that's what we're seeing in Wisconsin right now. We all we know all too well what failure of leadership looks like in Illinois. <laughs> Um, uh, our governor is. In fact, I heard the president talking about. That yes, yesterday. yeah, yeah. He, we got a shout out, uh, and always for the wrong reasons, as usual. But um, uh, the governor, or uh, our governor, talking about how there needed to be uh, a national plan. There needs to be a plan of action. Uh, what about you know, as somebody who was a two-term governor of Wisconsin, I'm looking at the CDC website, and uh, right there in state and local government planning, they have preparing for a pandemic influenza, a primer for governors and senior state officials. Um, uh, with the uh, details about best practices and supplies and so on and so forth. It's not like that these documents don't exist just as reporting about pandemics and the po- prospect of pandemics go back 30 years, at least with multiple administrations, multiple Congresses. It's, it seems to me that it's a few, thankfully, but there are a lot of governors and, and some mayors, some governors, I should say, and some mayors that are really blame shifting and trying to divert people's <laughs> attention away from all the resources that were at their disposal, just like anybody else. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily a partisan in this case. I mean, I, I think there are a number of governors, number of mayors who step up and just say, let's just get it done. I remember a decade plus ago uh, when I was running for governor, I had sat down with people like Jeb Bush, for example, who obviously from Florida had gone through a number of hurricanes. And and we talked. That was one of the most important things we talked about before I was governor, even when I was just running, was how do you prepare? Now, we didn't think we'd have any hurricanes, thankfully, in Wisconsin. Great Lakes are great, but they're not that big. But but we knew that there'd be tornadoes and floods and there's other sorts of tragedies out there. And you just got to toughen up and you got to have a plan and you got to bring your team together. And probably the, one of the most important things that I've seen some do well and others fail miserably at is you've got to communicate. Forget about shifting blame. Forget You know, there's enough to worry about that later. I mean, you know, who would have known <laughs> unless you're people like me and probably many of your listeners and listened to the facts, but that the media is now realizing George W. Bush actually gave a speech about this years ago, right. saying we got to be ready, and everybody ignored it. And you know, and Obama and Biden depleted the uh, uh, the supplies that the federal government had that Bush and others were trying to do. But the bottom line in a situation like this, forget about blame. You got to work together, not just different levels of government, public and private sector, and you got to communicate. You got to tell people not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it. People have failed to do that all over the country. He is Governor Scott Walker, 45th governor of Wisconsin, now the president-elect of Young America's Foundation. Scott, thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck with the election tomorrow. Thank you. Be well. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, we've uh, heard from people who are uh, being looked at askance if they don't have a uh, face covering now after the pronunciations this weekend. 
you understand this is to protect you from me. And so, as Fauci said, I, I tested negative. So there's no protection needed. Do you wear a mask when you're not on television? Um, well, you know, my, my life is, is, is pretty different. I, I, I stay six feet away from anybody that I can. If I go out, which I really don't do very much because of, of, of the, my life as it is now, Morgan, I would and do if you go to a situation where you don't have control over that six foot distance that you wear a mask. I, I tell you what, this is a good example of um, a piece that uh, our next guest wrote this this asinine debate. You can wear a mask. Why aren't you wearing a mask? Are you standing six feet apart all the time. This feeds, you know, we're all in this together. Hey, a nine one one. I just saw a couple not six feet apart. Could you send a squad? We're all in this together. Yeah. Pulling a guy off a golf course in Massachusetts and cuffs, uh, arresting a paddleboarder in L.A. Yeah. We're all in this together. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jeff Tucker. He is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It, Why you should love it Back. A lot of unrequited love uh, these days. Jeffrey Tucker, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you. I enjoyed your little intro. Thanks. Thank you. Well, uh, you wrote a piece, Coronavirus as Ideology, but I think it's so instructive, this uh, interplay you had with a woman that you've seen before sure. in non-COVID-19 circumstances and how it changed. As, you know, a young woman, 20-something, and just, I don't know, there, there's a kind of uh, sense that, that young people have been sort of trained to be disgruntled with the world, angry, uh, feeling as if there's something fundamentally wrong. And, and this this COVID situation for a, for a lot of 20-somethings is kind of a co- confirmation of everything that they uh, thought was somehow wrong with the world. It's like an apocalyptic mentality. Oh, it's finally happened. You know, the disaster is finally here. So now I'm going to deploy all my skills, which, you know, amounts to social shaming and canceling and, and hating other people and Turning, turning one person against another. You know, I, I, I don't know if you have sensed this, but just anecdotally, my sense is that 20-somethings are far more panicked about this than 50- and 60-somethings or 70-somethings. Well, I mean, I think there, there, they've lived a lot. There's I mean, an element of weirdness yeah. about, about them. Yeah, a madness, a madness about, about young people. Even though the data is showing that young people are, are, are have the lowest risk group. Well, I mean, what my, I would I'll hazard a theory on that. I just I, in part because it's people who have lived a life and so they've lived through some things and probably lived a life that was a lot less sheltered growing up than your 20 year olds of today. Oh, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, you know, I'm, I'm now in my in my 50s and uh, you know, I, f- I feel like I have a little more perspective on, on what to do with respiratory disease and, and viruses that come along and that sort of thing. I mean, it's pretty interesting when I reflect about my childhood. We had a completely different uh, view of disease. You know, the first person in my classroom who got chickenpox got a party, and we all went over there to catch it. <laughs> it's the herd immunity theory of, of disease, and uh, the idea is that something has to run its course, and then you, you get immune to it. And so you want to get it as early as possible so it doesn't affect you the rest of your life. Of course, nowadays, we have a vaccine for chickenpox, but we learned to control that thing over the course of many decades. And there was a, a social ethos that gathered around it. You know, like I say, chickenpox parties, and parents would celebrate, you know, when your 
when you're when you get little rub bumps on you, everybody was calm about it. And, you know, there was a real premium on staying calm and positive and dealing with the virus as just sort of part of the natural world that we have to uh, deal with. And the worst thing you want to do is is panic and scream and <laughs> run around. It's just the strangest thing. It's sometime in the last six weeks, we decided to replace uh, the wisdom of the ages, a culture of freedom, a professional consensus you know, among medical experts with just some sort of insane, you know, just wild blanket crackdown, uh, you know, where, where mayors and governors are, should assume dictatorial power to assume, you know, what's essential and unessential. It, it's almost medieval. What I'm seeing right now is a lot of confirmation bias, people who advocated brutality and cruelty towards other people and, and shutting on the economy, destroying businesses, throwing millions and millions and millions of people out of work, driving people to despair. In their in their houses, you know, uh, forcing people to stay home, are now looking for ways to justify that behavior, even though our knowledge about the coronavirus is growing by the day, and gradually, uh, rationality and clarity are replacing what was essentially a, an epistemic crisis back in, in uh, February. We didn't know anything, and so we panicked instead. But now, now we're starting to get knowledge, and I'm hoping that uh, we can start reversing to, uh, some of these these calamitous, disastrous policies we've imposed. Yeah, but it's it's going to be challenging, and the reason is because you have um, the organization with the biggest channel, which is the Gang of 500 inside the Beltway, that uh, is hell-bent on a two-pronged narrative, apocalypse and Trump underreacted. Oh, yeah, I, I know. And I it, 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 but look, there are certain incredible ironies about this, uh, uh, about both. I mean, one is that, yes, clearly uh, the political class is using this virus to get what they want anyway, which is basically your money to pillage and give to their friends. Okay, so that, let's, don't pull yourself. This is not a stimulus package. This is just, this is just robbery. Uh, that, so that's one problem. This, this thing that you have now uh, about how Trump underreacted, so what is that actually saying? Now, you've got here a, a, a class of people who had been warning for years, years, six years of warnings that Trump is, is an authoritarian, fascist, uh, potential dictator, uh, uh, you know, who, who's, who's against press freedom and doesn't actually believe in civil liberties and that sort of thing. I mean, I, th- this is the prevailing ethos. And I, and by the way, I mean, I don't think those are illegitimate concerns. I've always been worried about some aspects of his personality and ideology. But now what's the complaint against him? That he's not assuming enough dictatorial power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Biden is now blasting Trump for not nationalizing industry fast enough. And, and, and I can't even watch these press conferences where these media clowns, you know, Hector Trump and, and demand that he become a dictator. I mean, I, you know, I'm I, again. I'm not a huge fan of Trump, but my God, um, he's been actually overall uh, more constitutional, more freedom-minded, more civil liberties-oriented, and more normal than all of his critics. These people, uh, I don't know what it is they want. They want Stalin. You know, they don't care anything about the Constitution. They don't care anything about human rights, liberty in the land of the free and home of the brave. <laughs> That's out the window for these people. So it's 
pretty darn creepy, I must say. He is yeah. Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. Take All care. the best. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, this has been and continues to be Trump's mantra, at least a portion of it, at his task force briefings over the weekend. Trump reiterating, yes, we need to... Uh, batten down the hatches, particularly this week, which is supposed to be bad, our 9-11 Pearl Harbor moment, according to the Surgeon General. Um, But we also need to get our our, uh, country open again. We want to finish this war. We have to get back to work. We have to get we have to open our country again. We have to open our country again. We don't want to be doing this for months and months and months. We're going to open our country again. This country wasn't meant for this. Few were. Few were. But we have to open our country again. And there may be even more anxiousness to do that after Germany announced earlier today that uh, they have drawn up a list of steps, including mandatory mask wearing in public, limits on gatherings, rapid tracing, uh, uh, tracing of infection chains to help enable a phased return, phased return to something appro- uh, approximating normalcy after their lockdown is set to end on April 19th. Now, interestingly, a new Huffington Post YouGov survey over the weekend finds that even if we're restrictions to be eased by mid-April in America, more than six in 10 Americans would still stay home. Only 19 percent say they go back to their regular life. That's how jumpy America is about the spread of this virus, which I, I think probably has some positive attributes and negative attributes. Uh, but of course, uh those 60 percent plus who aren't anxious to go back maybe have the luxury of not having to go back for those on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum it's not so simple as we've discussed on this show before the people that are getting hurt the most are the people least able to weather economic ruin or frankly the spread of a virus and we'll get to that from a health perspective as well but uh, consistent with that discussion is this piece by Nicholas Casey in the New York Times over the weekend about uh, how uh, uh, different undergrads at uh, a elite liberal art college are experiencing the college being shut down differently. Nicholas Casey is a national politics reporter at the New York Times, previously the Andes Bureau chief, where he covered the collapse of Venezuela under President Nicolas Maduro. And in 2016, he won the George Polk Award with photographer Meredith Kohut for their reporting on the country of Venezuela. Nicholas Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us about uh, Haverford College and how uh, the shutdown of that one liberal arts college has affected a couple of the undergrads quite differently. Yeah, I mean, Haverford is um, an elite liberal arts college. There's many of these on the East Coast and other parts of the U.S. And one of the ideas, uh, founding ideas behind these schools is that those who can't afford to come get scholarships and just 
you know, the campus itself, you look around, people are uh, wearing the same clothes, they're eating at the same, you know, cafeterias, they're, they're sleeping on the same creaky beds. But when Haverford had to close because of the virus, suddenly a lot of the disparities between these kids became evident. Some could get home, others couldn't get home. Um, some home meant coming back to um, a nice house, a nice second house, a place where there was no virus. And for others, including one of the kids that I talked to, um, she had to come home to Florida where her, her, her parents' food truck, their only source of income, was on the verge of failing. Um, she was trying to balance doing her classwork with basically working the food truck to make sure that their family had money. Yeah, and 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 so, you know, how do you see that playing out? Because there's this, this is a discussion that is getting more energy, and I think it's appropriate. Coming out of this, depending how long it lasts and how much economic pain is inflicted across the board, but particularly in those lower socioeconomic, uh, the lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, you know, there's going to be, if, if you, if, if people thought fabric, the social fabric was fraying a bit over inequality or the feeling like there's different sets of rules for different people before this, it, it, there's a belief it will be even more pronounced after this. And how does that play itself yeah, out? Absolutely. Um, I think when times are good, it's harder to see the inequality. I think people in the last you know, 10 years were aware of it. But when times are bad, there's certain people that are going to have access to masks. There's certain people that can get away from these packed cities where the virus is starting to spread really fast, like New York, where I am. And there's a lot of people that can't. And when there's not enough resources, uh, when people in certain jobs can't work from home because they're service sector jobs or because they're working in hospitals or because they're basically working to keep the country running um, as food delivery people delivering food. Um, those are the people who are getting hit worst by this. And it takes a crisis like this to really show where all the chips fall in this country. Uh, when we come back with Nicholas Casey, national politi- uh, politics reporter at the New York Times, I want to pick up our discussion and focus in on some new statistics about COVID deaths in urban centers that uh, speak to this conversation from another angle that we're otherwise having. More with Nicholas Casey right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're speaking with Nicholas Casey, national politics reporter at the New York Times. And we're talking about the, this piece he wrote about, well, it's entitled College Made Them Feel Equal, the Virus Exposed, how, how Unequal Their Lives Are. And the difference here is with the young lady who went back to Florida, family's food truck versus the uh, other student who uh, is uh, surviving uh, on a vacation home on the coast of Maine. They're still both going back to Haverford College and this, they're still both on a track to uh, be able to chart their course in life because they were lucky enough to be able to go to Harper for Haverford College. Then there's this statistic that has uh, presented itself about some, what's happening in some urban centers. In Chicago, uh, new data over the weekend showed 70% of the people who have died as a result of COVID black. 30% of the city's population is black. Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, 81% of the people killed by the virus have been black. Only 26% of the county's population is black. In Detroit, only 12 percent of the population is black. Forty percent of the COVID-19 deaths are black. And, uh, you know, this speaks to something else that's you know sort of papered over in good economic times, as you were describing before with respect to college. 
which is that uh, the quality of life in urban centers is very different in different neighborhoods. And uh, if we want to start talking about sort of underlying conditions, like we talk about with the virus, underlying health conditions, then we also need to start talking about, it seems to me, this is an opportunity, talk about underlying conditions of regular life uh, sans pandemic in our urban centers. Absolutely. I think it is exposing all kinds of problems uh, and will continue to expose all kinds of problems that we were vaguely aware of that we were talking about in previous years when we could have done something about them. I think part of the problem is is that at a time of crisis like this, you're going to see lots of issues, lots of structural problems, but I will even to fix them, but there's going to be no money and no time to actually deal with them right now. And that fundamentally it's too late when you're seeing kind of the situation between um, you know, white and black community members in Chicago, Milwaukee, or Detroit. Um, you can see this coming up in statistics that there was a disparity, but in the middle of a pandemic, this is not going to be the time anybody's going to be able to really address any other issues than you know, who's getting on a ventilator right now. No, right. I understand. But I mean, thinking about this prospectively and you know, all the discussion now about what uh, life will look like post-COVID-19 in terms of how we do education or this is another topic of conversation because we've been doing things largely yeah. one way with one party in control of these big urban centers yeah. and it's not working. I certainly hope this leads to some reflection and some discussion, but I think you and I both lived through the 2008 financial crisis, and there were lots of vows that there was going to be reform just of one sector, the financial sector, and we saw an attempt at that, and we saw a lot of attempts to undo it in the years afterward. And I don't think anybody who knows the financial sector thinks that it was any better prepared to deal with uh, these shocks than it was in 2008 when it had a different set of shocks going on. So. Uh, I would like to think that this is going to lead to the kind of uh, restructuring uh, post-COVID that would be necessary. But I've lived through both the 90s, 2000s, and the 2010s, um, and I saw very little of it during the course of my life. So I'm I'm a little bit doubtful that, that we'll have the kind of reform that we really want to see. Well, I mean, I understand the skepticism, and to, to some extent I share it, but the difference with this is we've we've never had this response, and so we've never... Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what ultimate uh, damage will suffer in terms of the loss of life, but but uh, mm. but we've never had the sort of self-inflicted economic damage, which is, uh, you know, has a whole nother calculation in terms of loss of life as well. Well, I think, no, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we haven't um, you know, seen anything that's like this before. Um, whether we'll come out of this better for it, I hope so. Um, but even just watching kind of the response to uh, the stimulus packages that have been proposed um, and the pushback against what has amounted to a much smaller stimulus than almost all economists say the economy needs right now. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, going back to 2008, um, that stimulus wasn't done properly. Um, This one doesn't seem to be done properly. I think that we have a very large uh, chance of coming out of this, uh, this collapse with uh, a landscape where there are almost no small businesses, um, only large corporations um, that have managed to survive this, and huge unemployment like we have not seen since the Great Depression, uh, perhaps even more than the Great Depression, frankly, um, and uh, no World War II at the end to be able to uh, fire up the industrial machine uh, to be able to get the economy out of it. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I think that's I, I, yeah. And just as we're adjusting models with respect to uh, predictions about hospitalizations and deaths on the fly as real world data comes in, 
I mean, you know, you talk to most economists, including Nobel laureates I've talked to, and uh, they're sort of in the same place as adjusting models based on how people react and w- what happens because we're in uncharted territory with respect to this kind of spend as well in the context of a shutdown that right now is at least going to be five weeks long effectively, six weeks long effectively, and uh, you know could go beyond that. And then you'd really start to potentially have things break apart for businesses, as you're sort of suggesting, that uh, don't have more than 30 days cash flow. I think there have been European governments, especially in some of the Nordic countries, that have said, uh, listen, uh, we have to do the shutdown because of the loss of life, but the government has the ability to replace the salaries of the workers uh, who are put out of work during this period of time. I think when those countries start to bounce back, they'll see that they have very close to employment that was before COVID, whereas the approach that we're taking, which is mass unemployment that's been forced by the government itself, uh, with nothing more than uninsurance, uh, uninsurance uh, uh, benefits that you get, uh, unemployment benefits that you get, it's very unlikely that you're going to see any businesses um, you know, that people can return to um, with the approach that we're taking right now. And I think this has uh, become a terrifying prospect for economists not to mention the people who are unemployed currently. Well, right, and then and then we'll have to see how this the, the PPP program, the Payroll Protection Program, plays out in terms of businesses incentivized to retain employees and how long they can actually do that while also uh, keeping their doors open because ultimately I can do that for right now with this, uh, lo- yeah. this forgivable loan, but if you put me into May, then i got to shut my doors so I can't keep anybody on the payroll if I shut my doors. I think it's less an issue of whether you keep it into May. I think very much we're going to probably have to keep it into May, but the question of the government's will to be able to keep these businesses open during the shutdown, which has to happen, uh, is another issue. It's not, I think, a question of whether that small business owner is going to be able to keep the doors open, but whether the people in Congress are going to be willing to keep the doors open with the amount of investment they're going to need to make. Um, and I'm not sure that that's going to continue. Uh, we'll have to see. They're proposing another stimulus right now. We'll see how far that gets. He is Nicholas Casey. He's a national politics reporter for The New York Times. He is previously the Andes Bureau Chief, where he covered the collapse of Venezuela under President Nicolas Maduro. In 2016, he won the George Polk Award with photographer Meredith Kohut for their reporting on the country of Venezuela. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And I just wanted to end on an optimistic note, and an optimistic note that comes from one Dr. Tony Fauci, of all people. A couple of optimistic notes, actually. Uh, first, uh, Tony Fauci reconciling for the simpletons in the D.C. press corps, the idea that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but also that this is going to be a tough week, as the Surgeon General calling it our Pearl Harbor 9-11 moment this week. So uh, against the backdrop of what's projected to be a week of significant death and suffering, uh, Tony Fauci reconciling that there's still reason to be optimistic, to be hopeful. So right now we're seeing, as we all said correctly, that this is probably going to be a really bad week. That is a reflection of what happened two and a half weeks ago. So if we start seeing now a flattening or a stabilization of cases, what you're hearing about potential light at the end of the tunnel doesn't take away from the fact that tomorrow or the next day it's going to look really bad. So we've got to make sure we realize we're always talking about a two and a half week lag. 
So I want to make sure, because I think a couple of people asked that question. It's really not incompatible with what we're saying. Now, with regard to what do we tell the American people, what, Kelly, what we've been telling them all along, that the, the only tool but the best tool we have is mitigation. But just temper your understanding. I mean, you're going to be drawn to the death numbers, understandably so, because you have concern for your fellow man and woman. Uh, but lo- also look at the number of new cases. And if we see those going, continuing to go down, we hope to see them continue to go down on a daily basis, then that's the light at the end of the tunnel coming into focus. Fauci said something else, too, about uh, asymptomatic cases that is worth noting. You know, we don't know, and even among us, good friends that we are, <laughs> we, we, we differ about that. I mean, it's somewhere between 25 and 50 percent. Yeah, in other words, about the people, yeah, about the people that are out there, yeah. And, and trust me, that is an estimate. I don't have any scientific data yet to say that. You know when we'll get the scientific data, when we get those antibody tests out there, and we really know what the penetrance is. Then we can answer the questions in a scientifically sound way. Right now, we're just guessing. Right. But that, those are big numbers. That's a big range. It could be way off. As he said, they're just guessing. Move those antibody tests along, which there was a little bit more alacrity in Fauci's remarks about moving the antibody tests along. And then um, you may very well, with the, the magnitude he's talking about, have lethality rates that are a fraction of what they're projecting out to be right now. Also, the antibody testing may provide for a facilitation for reopening faster than anybody thinks right now. A hopeful note. So while you uh, rest on that hopeful note and uh, want to take in something for a mental health break, don't forget No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Number one political documentary of 2019, Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla reveal how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas and what you can do to change that. No Safe Spaces now available for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Thank you for joining us. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.